Kiora Pinakoto Nomai Hairamai. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Walk in the Shadowlands podcast. Join me as we take a walk into the realms of the unexplained, of the paranormal, of things that go bump in the night and haunt your dreams. Your hosts. I'm Marianne. Thanks so much for joining me today, tonight, whatever time it is, wherever you live in this beautiful world of ours. Sit back and relax. Let me be your guide as we walk into the Shadowlands together and see what awaits us there. Welcome to another episode of the Walking in the Shadowlands podcast. Today, I've got a real treat for you. We're diving deep into the Shadowlands, into the extraordinary, with a fascinating guest who's been on the front lines of uncovering the unexplained. Joining us is a former police detective turned UFO researcher and the author of the thought-provoking book, Non-Human, our guest has dedicated his life to peeling back the layers of mysteries surrounding unidentified aerial phenomenon, UFOs or UAPs, sparking conversations that challenge the status quo. Through untold stories, compelling evidence and our guest's own experiences that have left him questioning the boundaries of our reality. From close encounters to governmental secrecy, we'll explore the uncharted territories that push the boundaries of what we think we know. So, grab your favourite beverage, settle in and join us as we unravel the enigma of extraterrestrial encounters, government cover-ups and the profound impact these mysteries have had on our perception of humanity. Our guest is here to share his insights, experiences and the revelations packed within the pages of non-human. This episode is sure to challenge your perspective and leave you questioning the world around you. Without further ado, are you willing to walk into the Shadowlands with me and see what awaits us there? Let's begin. Gary Hesseltine is the founder and editor of the UFO Truth magazine and is based in the UK. Born in 1960, he spent six years in the Royal Air Force Police before joining the British Transport Police in 1989. He went on to complete an almost 24-year career before retiring early in 2013 to follow his passion for researching UFOs. For most of his police service, he served as a detective constable, working on all manner of inquiries including murder, manslaughter and rape. He became an advanced police interviewer of witnesses and suspects and in that specialist role, he was involved in the 2005 London Bombings Terrorist Inquiry, where he interviewed a number of first responding BTP officers to three of the four crime scenes. In 2010, he was awarded the PRG Disclosure Award in Washington, D.C. for his work with police officers and in 2012, he was presented with the EXO Politics Great Britain Award for his research. 
He then appeared at the prestigious 2013 Citizens Hearing at the National Press Club in Washington, D.C., USA, speaking on behalf of police officers worldwide. As one of nine researchers, he gave testimony before the Brazilian Senate in June 2022, where he stated that he believed some UFO UAP events were likely to be extraterrestrial or non-human in origin. Gary is also the Vice President of ISA, International Coalition for Extraterrestrial Research, an international NGO comprising scientists, academics and leading UAP researchers with national representations in 30 countries. Non-Human is his first book on the subject of UFOs or UAPs. I'd like to welcome my guest, Gary Hisseltine. I've been waiting to talk to you about this subject that we're going to tackle today. It's a topic that has had my interest since before I started my podcast. Can you perhaps start by giving us an overview of the Rendlesham Forest UFO incidents and what led you to delve into this topic for your book? I had an interest in Rendlesham for a long time before I got involved in active research about it. Because for six years, I served in the Royal Airport Police. And for three of my six years, I did the same as what the U.S. Security Police involved in the Reynolds incident, which was guarding tactical nuclear weapons on a nuclear weapon storage area. So I had some kind of experience guarding nuclear weapons similar to theirs. And there isn't a lot of difference, to be honest. And I always thought that there were probably many more witnesses because I knew how the working storage area worked and how many people were on the base doing security kind of thing. And so that kind of led me over a period of time to get involved. I first became involved in Rendlesham public research in December of 2007 when I did a, a history channel program for what was called the UFO Hunter series with a guy called Bill Burns. And they'd invited Colonel Holt, who wrote that famous Holt memorandum, to come over as one of the guests. They were also filming me because I had this unofficial national police database in the UK called Proofos about police officers. So that's how I became known within the subject. And I just happened to remark, I said, you're coming over to film me. It's a long way to come from America just to film me. Are you doing anything else? And they said, yeah, we're doing Reynolds and Forest. And so I said, I've got an interest in Reynolds and Forest. And they said, why? And I explained about my military service. And they said, oh, that's interesting. Do you want to come along and involve and meet Colonel Holt? And obviously I said, oh, obviously I'd look to come down. And so that's how I got to meet Colonel Holt. So it was at that point there, to December 2007, that I went public my research. Moving forward, 2017, I was asked to take part in a proposed documentary, Rendlesham Forest. And as the lead researcher, and I thought, if I'm going to do this, I best make sure it's accurate. Right. So I thought I knew a lot. Didn't know a lot. Thought I'm going to go back to square one after the incident and just see what I can come up with. 
And so that was what prompted me to do that. And then the book came from the decision made in early 2020, when I realized that the documentary, which was by then already three years in post-production, still wasn't coming out. And my then wife said, why don't you write a book? You've got loads of material, more than enough for the documentary. So I thought about it. I thought, yeah, that's right. I've got a lot of material. So then I started thinking about the book. And so I became involved in writing it in 2017. Here we are six years later, the book's behind me, and I, I released it in February of this year on Amazon. Uh, so in the process of doing that, I approached what I already knew prior to 2017. And then if you, and I know that you've read the book now, you can see that I divided it up to priest 2017 before I got involved. And then what I learned after 2017, I, I think you'll attest to the fact that there's a lot of new material in there that had never been aired before. And when I released the book, I did so with any pre-publicity. Who does that? Yeah. Who writes the book, their first book, and doesn't promote it? Yeah. But I did, I did that purposely because I knew that some people in America particularly did not want me to reveal what I was going to reveal. Right. And so I thought, if I do it this way, I put self-published on Amazon, then the genies out of the bottle and the public get to read what you should have been told about a long time ago. And so just trying to get the evidence out there. My approach to the book was just to concentrate on the facts as a former police detective, reassess things and make a determination based on the evidence and give reasoned conclusions. Which is what I've done, but you're the one that read it. You tell me whether I succeeded or not. Yeah, well, I think you did a brilliant job. Before we get into your book, perhaps we should talk about what the Rendlesham incident was. So okay, so Rendlesham basically is a series of UFO-related incidents that take place in late December 1980 in and around the twin the U.S. bases of Aria Bentwaters and Aria Woodbridge. So you've got two American bases, and in the middle there is a forest or Reddlesham Forest. And a lot of the incidents happened in the forest, which was on British ground. It, was, it wasn't an American land. And whilst there were some incidents on the bases, the majority of incidents took place in the forest, very close to one of the main gates at Aria Woodbridge. It's very famous, if you know the case, what's called the East Gate. It's like the rear entrance of Aria. And, and a lot of incidents are there or are nearby. So that's the key area. And basically, it involves the United States Air Force Security Police Officer, so military police, for want of a better word, who were principally guarding tactical nuclear weapons, which are small, low-yield nuclear weapons that were held in the other base, where it don't want us in what was called their weapon storage area underground. They were stored there, but there was a contingent of security police at both Bentwaters and Woodbridge, and they would also have mobile patrols going between the two bases, often driving on public roads. So that actually plays a part in one of the stories that we may talk about, Lieutenant Molly Tampin, what happened to her. You have these a series of UFO-related incidents 
that are largely seen by security police, but also some civilians who live near the bases. And also, we know uh, that there are other people, peripheral, possibly firemen, military firemen, technical people who worked on vehicles, those kind of things. So we're not too sure of too many of them. We know one or two people who were named and they're in the book, but the vast majority are security police and some high-level officers saw them too. So that's what makes it interesting. And there's paperwork, there's ground depressions that were found. There's, I believe, now two landing sites. The first landing site has become very famous because it's documented in what's called the Holt Memorandum. It was written by the then Deputy Base Commander, Lieutenant Colonel Charles Holt, who went out two nights after an initial landing of an unknown. And then two nights later, the UFOs were seen again. He led a team out in the forest, and he too had multiple UFO sightings with his colleagues. So he wrote it down on a memorandum that was sent to the British Ministry of Defence, and that was then passed up to the Americans, or rather, the Ministry of Defence made a decision, and they amazingly said there's nothing of defence significance. Despite the fact that there's no, no landing craft, triangular in shape, didn't have an engine, no wings, no tail, looked like glass, felt like glass, warm to the ton, three metres by three metres, and that's not of defence interest. Yeah. I've never really believed the Ministry of Defence line anyway. But that's what they said. There's nothing of defence. And I think what happened that is that the American government realised how major a case it was. The British government did. The British military, the American military realised just how many incidents there'd been and how serious it was, especially when they were claiming that they didn't do any UFO research from the American perspective. That all closed with Project Blue in 1969. And this case was a direct threat. So I think that they came up with the idea to debunk it as much as they could. And for about nearly three years, that's what they did. They denied there was any paperwork. And it was only until the 2nd of October, 1983, almost three years after the event, when the public became aware of this, very what is now a very famous document, the Holt Memorandum outlined two different USO events on two different nights. The US Air Force had said, no, there's nothing, nothing happens. We have no paperwork. And then suddenly, oh, yes, there is this stuff. But that's all we have. We don't tell anything else. I don't believe that. And I think that they've got a lot of other documents secreted away. And 100% I agree with you. And this kind of leads on to the next question. The title of your book, Non-Human, is quite an intriguing title. Could you explain? the significance of this title and how it ties in to the events because in your coverage of the basic events, you did omit one factor that's not widely known. I've been a public researcher since January 2002, so 21st year of being out in the public domain as a researcher. But I've been following the subject since my own childhood sighting when I was 16 years of age. I've been almost 47 years. Wow. Follow the subject. And I think that's led me to a uh, quite an historical. I consider myself now as something of an historian because I've read all the books. Right. I pretty much know all the people involved in the subject. So, in a sense, I'm quite well placed in that way. But the, the Rendlesham case and the book are important because it never really been told properly. Mm. Being, I think, maybe 
a dozen books or so now, Reynolds Street book, they've generally been told either from a very one point of view, often it, it wasn't balanced. Right. The best book prior to mine, I think, was You Can't Tell the People by Georgina Brunei, mm. which I think was placed in 2000. And she did a very good job. She wasn't a UFO researcher at all. She was actually from the showbiz land and uh, like a gossip columnist who accidentally started to research it. And at the time, when people wrote books about UFOs, that's what it was called. And people only really ever thought about extraterrestrial. But in recent years, say in the last five years, six years, in CERN in Switzerland, the Large Hadron Collider has been doing experiments where they collide atoms at great speed and then they see what happens at the collision point. And there was what's called the Higgs boson, the God particle, as they called it. And when they collided, in that infinitesimal split second, they saw other dimensions. And in the quantum physics world, they said that there were many more dimensions. And that opened the way for people to talk about quantum entanglement, which is way above my understanding. And most people's understanding, physics can be very difficult. But basically, it said you could maybe walk time, space, and you can travel distances by being interdimensional. So you might cut the distance by warping time. And people often do this. They say time is linear. We travel that way. What they're saying is you can go from there to there instead of there to there by traveling through an interdimensional talking, maybe. That kind of thing, which again is very complicated. So in recent years, people have been saying probably extraterrestrial, but it could be interdimensional. Mm. And in in the last 18 months or so, I've heard more and more people, some of them are really well connected, say that it might actually be something that's infraterrestrial or ultra-terrestrial. What we mean by that is there may actually be another race, not human, mm. that's on the earth that just keeps themselves to themselves, maybe technologically very advanced, and they might be here and have always been here, mm. maybe longer than we have, but they just keep themselves to themselves. So it sounds pretty crazy, but nobody rules out the interdimensional. And so the, the phrase that's now come is non-human intelligence. What that basically means is, and and, and actually echoes what we'd already talked about, because two years ago, I'm the vice president of ICE, the International Coalition for Extraterrestrial Research, and that's made up of scientists, academics, and leading researchers around the world. We've got representatives in 30 countries, because it's clearly a global issue. It's not a US issue, it's a global issue. New Zealand issue, an Australian issue. It's all countries of the world are affected. And... When ISA was created, and I was one of the founding people involved in that, I suggested that for anybody to become an ISA national representative, that we all had to be on the same page. Because historically, a lot of UFO groups could never, they were always arguing, and my group's right. better than your group. And I wanted to get away from all that. I wanted to have a level playing field. So basically, the basic criteria for anybody to become and as a national representative or deputy national representative, is that they would have to sign an oath. And right. the oath was based on 
loosely, we've studied the best evidence from around the world for the last 75 years, and we've concluded that we've been in, engaged by a non-human intelligence. Probably extraterrestrial in origin, certainly non-human. Came about three years ago, we went public with creation in May 2012. So I think we're at the forerunners of, of using that term. It was already in existence, so certainly we were well-placed to introduce it right. in 2021. And so when it came to writing my book, then even though personally I think that the majority of what's seen around the world is extraterrestrial, and that's based on the contact phenomenon, where people all around the world, different continents, even in third world countries, describe similar species and similar experiences. That makes me think that's real. People mm -hmm. are having contact with some kind of experience with something that's not imaginary, it's real. And I think that it's almost extraterrestrial. But as a catch-all, it's now easier to just put everything in the basket of saying it's non-human. So I guess in some ways, it's a bit of a net, a catch-all. Mm -hmm. So it could be extraterrestrial, interdimensional, interterrestrial, or it might be a combination of all three. Personally, I still think the majority is extraterrestrial. That makes sense. If you're a civilization that's a million years ahead of Earth time, then you would have new methods of propulsion and traveling through the stars. Distances would be the problem. It'd be a bit like Star Trek and what? Yeah. I, I certainly makes sense to me. And, and I think a lot of astronomers are very narrow-minded because they can only relate to it in earthly terms. And it doesn't make sense. If I was to give my iPhone or my iPad, Leonardo da Vinci, who was the greatest mind of his time 400 years ago, 500 years ago, he would think that iPhone was magic. He would not, in any circumstances, be able to understand electronics, etc. That's just 500 years. What if a civilization is a thousand years, 10,000 years ahead of Earth time? Mm. Uh, so I don't think the factor in the same way that at one time we couldn't travel. We had no means to travel right. over an animal's horses. And then we got faster, and then we got the SR-71 that could fly around the Earth in three and a half hours, and so on. Time reduces the more you become technological. So I think, if anything, was advanced older than this planet, and actually the Earth is quite a young planet, mm. then I think life teeming out there. And people said to me, why did they come here? And I would say, think of it from this point of view. We go to the Great Barrier Reef because it's an area of special interest. Yeah. We go to the Galapagos Islands because of some of the species and fauna that's there. It's a period of scientific interest. If you were able to travel the stars, like we can travel between flying between cities in the comparison, you'd want to come maybe to Earth because in maybe in our bit of the cosmic neighborhood, we're a planet that's so rich in water, light, yeah. fauna, a diverse light fauna. So I think we're probably like an oasis in the desert. We're an interesting place. And, yeah. and if you have that ability to travel like that, then it makes perfect sense. You come here. Space tourism as much as anything. Would be the insects on the ground. Yeah, absolutely. The human zone. Yeah. When this Rendlesham forest thing went on, they not only saw the craft on the ground, but they also saw non human beings as well. Yes, there's two reports that are legitimate from military witnesses. The first one involves a guy called 
John Burroughs, who was one of the original people to see the landed object on the first night. Interestingly, he will say that he didn't see a trap that Penniston was with him. Uh, Jim Penniston says he saw this small black object on the ground. John Burroughs was several meters back and he said all he saw was the glow of lights, which suggested a structure behind. So from his perspective, several meters back, he didn't see the crap clearly. And that's so you've got a slightly discrepancy. But again, it's on perspective. And if you're 20 meters, 30 meters behind the other person, then your perspective may well be uh, blocked in terms of bright light uh, in front of the crap. He went out with a, a sergeant called Adrian Bustinza. And this is almost called the Holt Night. We think there's four consecutive nights now. But on night three, and these have always changed over the years as we've learned more. Originally, there were only two nights. Then we realized that there were three nights. Now, this Ed Bustinzi's interview, key interview that I did, four and a half hour transatlantic tour call, he was able to corroborate another landing. On the Holt Night, Holt goes out with his team of four or five that's the story. They come back up four and a half hours to what's called the staging area. The staging area is an important part of the story because it's where the vehicles had stopped in the forest because there was no more roads. So there were rough little tracks and then it come to a dead end and that's where they left all the vehicles. So that became the staging area for anybody who went into the forest. They had to get out and then and go on foot. When Colonel Holt had been out with his team, they come back after four and a half hours. John Burroughs was waiting. I'm speeding this up, but John Burroughs had been off duty, got a lift into the base. He'd heard that something was going on again in the forest. He'd been involved in the first night with Jim Penniston, and this was two nights later, and he wanted to get involved again. And he was told to wait until Colonel Holt came out with his team. Colonel Holt comes back with his team four and a half hours later, and he then says, Phil, Holt, I go out there. And Holt says, yeah, okay. And Sergeant Adrian Bustinza was nearby and he said, Sergeant Bustinza, would you come with me? Now, Sergeant Bustinza had been with Holt's team, so he, he probably wasn't really interested at the time to go up after four and a half hours of walking around. He was asked to go back out. So he said, yeah, okay, I'll for a few minutes. So they get permission to go. And we're not quite sure exactly where this incident takes place. But it's not in the farmer's field, which is a famous area, if you know Reynoldson. It's near to the side of the field. It's within 100 metres, roughly, of where we think it happened. And uh, what they basically say is, John Burroughs is walking ahead of Sergeant Adrian Bustinza. Then, a strange thing happens. Adrian Bustinza feels like somebody has kicked his legs out from underneath, from behind all right, and he falls forward as you would, and he puts his hands down to stop himself falling flat. Yeah, and at the same time, John Burroughs, who's maybe twenty meters ahead of him, suddenly is engulfed in this big bright white light, and it's so bright because he's looking forward, he can just see John Burroughs in the middle of this bright light. What he said was he could see a smaller figure on the left of John, and a smaller figure on the right of John. And if John Burroughs is six foot six or thereabouts, wow. he's a big guy. This is two smaller things, whatever you want to call them, 
was seen on either side by Sergeant Adrian Bastinza. But here's the interesting thing. When Sergeant Adrian Bastinza fell forward and then the light hit John, part of the light hit, if you think of a shadow catching your sunlight on your hand, part of the light that hit John also hit Sergeant Adrian Bastinza across his hands and his groin area. And he had medical symptoms to this day but what he thinks is related to that kind of light, whether it comes some kind of radiation, we don't know. But he's had minor issues with that all his life since, irritation, scabbing and whatever. So that's interesting. So that's like the first sighting where he, Adrian Bastinza doesn't like talking about entities, aliens or anything. He was very religious in his upbringing and he still has great fear. And so when he saw this caused him a lot of consternation, he mm. suffered with post-trauma distress, is not unlikely, plus these medical issues, plus he was threatened with his life when he was yeah. interrogated after the incident. So he has good reason to be not happy with this situation. But he is inadvertently involved in the second incident as well. So bad luck for him, and Adrian Bacinza was involved in the second incident which actually is arguably the most lied about, the most trivialized landing, a second landing. Because years ago, when this first story broke, there was a story of aliens right from the off. And the Air Force said there was no aliens, blah, blah, blah. And that's rubbish. However, a guy who is regarded as the military whistleblower for the case, was called Larry Warren. Young guy, only 19 years old. It was his first posting overseas. So he was green in terms of military work today. He'd only been on shift a few days and then suddenly found himself involved in this incident. He brought out a book here in 1997 called Left to East Gate, yeah. which was a good book. And he told it from his point of view. And he was instrumental in getting the whole memorandum out because he was a named person. And why he became the military whistleblower was because he was the first person to say, my name is Larry Warren, and I was in this incident, and in the press. And he would put his hands up. So he is by far. Well, there was another guy who would have been the military whistleblower who used the pseudonym of J.D. Ingle, or C. Roberts, whose actual name was found out many years later was J.D. Ingle. But he never went public. He right. always used a pseudonym. Right. So that's not quite the same thing. Uh, so the first person to put their name to the case was this Larry Warren. He was only 19, young guy. And basically, when his story came out, he then got attacked by other military witnesses, three in particular, two yep. in particular, Phil Holt and Jim Pennison, who said, no, we don't recall that. We think he's making it up. He's mistaken. And, you know, yeah. and he, the base commander, Colonel Williams, in charge of 12,000 people, he said, no, nah, that's literally no aliens seen, blah, blah, blah. Now, for a long time, or in recent years, he was particularly criticized because people had said he wasn't there, he was just making it up. Colonel Holt would say he was a wannabe, he wanted to be part of the story. It's ironic coming from him. Yeah, <laughs> ironic, yes. And interestingly, I think, some people in America, some researchers in America, didn't really do their due diligence because all of the years, Sergeant Adrian Bastinza, whilst he had never really done the press kind of thing, 
done a big story, a big interview. He had made several remarks over the years, seven of which highlighted in the book where he'd said Larry Warren was there. Now, what there was some confusion about what night it was. And what came out in my book was that after trying to get hold of Adrian Bastenza for a long time uh, and not having any responses from emails, social media, through another military witness, Laurie Bowen, who'd had her own precursor sighting in February 1980, listed in her book, she was friendly with him and she said, no, Gary's interviewed me, he's serious, he's a good guy, blah, blah, blah. So she opened the door and uh, I was able to finally speak to Adrian Bastinza and it turned out to be this four and a half hour transatlantic call, audio yeah. recorded, and I did a, basically a night shift and talked through the night. And it was exhausting. I tried a, a technique that I was an advanced place interviewer, tried to get him to remember as much as he could using what's called the enhanced cognitive method. It's just a, a way to trigger memories, to right. set up the interview. And they actually saw really a lot as, and as you've read in the book, yes. his chapter, I think it's something like 80 odd pages. It's the biggest chapter. But what he had to say was very important. Mm. And he said, with Larry Warren, he said after three hours, three and a half hours into the interview, he not mentioned really Larry Warren and this incident at all. I'm getting tired now. It's piling upon him. And honestly, I was set the will because when you're asking questions, and it, I realized that this is a very important interview. So you're really concentrating, and that right. is mentally tiring. Very tiring. Now, when you're asking questions now, you just yeah. at the end of it. People don't realize mentally tiring. And uh, I think uh, I can't go on industry hours as much as I want to. I couldn't. I was falling, almost falling asleep. I was really tired. So I, I said, I don't want to lead you, but I said, I, I need to ask this question about. Larry Warren, because there's all this debate, blah, blah, blah. And he said he was there. And he said that it was another night. And I said, what do you mean it's another night? Never said this before to me. And he says, yeah, I was involved in a second. He believes it's a second consecutive night. There might be a gap. Point was, he'd been involved in another night of UFO activity. We thought he'd only been involved in one night of activity. Right. It turns out he's two, and he says, only second night of activity. Actually, Larry Warren was in the field with me. He was closer to me than I was. So finally, we had this put to bed on audio, and that was really nice. And he said, yeah, he's there or whatever. And I corroborated it in a second interview on Skype that was actually on video that I recorded. But if you recall, reading the book, that was a nightmare for me because he recorded his voice, his responses, but my questions, it hadn't recorded. Yeah, that's right. But I was lucky, really, because it was better if his responses were recorded because mm. you could generally work out what the question was based on his answer. I'd quickly summarise what came from the first interview, the foreign art interview, and I'd said to him, basically, so I just want to summarise what emerged from the first interview. That there wasn't another landing. You were present. Larry Warren was present. Larry Warren was closer. Craft was surrounded by security police officers, was being filmed. Colonel Holt was there, and Colonel Williams, the best man, was there. Yeah. So it's yes, no, yes. And there was like five answers that he gave. If I hadn't have explained that, it wouldn't have made any sense whatsoever. Right. But I knew exactly what the questions were because that's what you would do as an advanced police interview. 
right. you've done one interview, you go back, and if you've had some key admissions, you like to go back and just summarize those key admissions. And it's the second time that that person confirms the key right. admission. Yeah, so that's what you do. Quick summary. So in the first interview, you said this, yes, yeah, well, and it's all tidied up, and they can't ever take that back then. And admitted it twice. Yeah. Yes, so they've admitted it in the first interview, and then you've summarized it. I've admitted it in the second, and you can't really go beyond that. So I knew what those five questions were. But when I got off, I thought, oh, this is great. And I played back. And I'm like, no. <laughs> and I tried every week to find a way to retrieve the sound. And there may well be a way, but I haven't been able to find it. I just had to tell the truth in the book and hope people would believe me. But that is exactly what happened. And he said some very important things, especially about his interrogation in the Skype interview, how he actually destroyed evidence. He put it in the fire because his family were giving him grief because his father worked for the government and there were being yeah. surveilled by unknown agencies, intelligence agencies. So he got on top of him and he burnt a lot of the stuff that he collected over the years. But he made a really big, important statement because what he said was that he'd been sent an envelope out of the blue, didn't know who sent it. And in the envelope, there were three audio tapes. Yeah. And there were three audio tapes to the channel that the US Air Force police used on one of the nights of the incident. And so what this actually proves was that the US Air Force security police routinely recorded at least three of their four radio channels mm -hmm. on audio tape and then rewound it and started again. But you think about all the evidence that would be contained. Oh, gosh, yes. On those audio tapes and be able to work out who did what. And the fact that nobody liked Colonel Holt, Colonel Williams, none of the senior people have ever admitted that, yeah. says to me they're trying to control the agenda. Oh, excellent. Uh, the story. And so, put a long story short, that there were two legitimate sightings of entities. And then the second one, what Larry Warren had always said was that in his book, Left at Eastgate, he'd said three, initially one like bubble. There was no doors that opened or windows, but something he said akin to a bubble slipped off the fabric of the shimmering in the field. And within that bubble, the bubble divided into three bubbles. Right. And within each of the bubbles was the upper torso of what looked like a child in a bunny suit. Right. Like cast for the ghost. Right. And they were small and there were and there were these bubbles that were floating beside the craft. And there was some kind of silent communicate, possibly telepathic, between the base commander there and these three entities there. Some of their entities. Now, Larry Warren had called them entities, whatever. Adrian Mustenza was there. He was part of that. He saw that. But he had great difficulty calling them entities. So he called them, I, I saw silhouettes. The most he could say, because he was religious, he found it, but he just got, right. he said, I saw silhouettes. But they're legitimate. But this second sighting, which was filmed on video. Mm. So where is that video? Mm. It's totally denied. Colonel Hall says, no, no, there was no. Interestingly, if you read the book, you'll know yes. that Colonel Hall 
admitted to a MUFON researcher, yep. mutual European network research called Ray Boucher, in April of 1985, six years before he retired from the US Air Force, he admitted to him verbatim that Colonel Williams was there, security police was there, and that it was filmed. Mm. He admitted that. And Holt was there as well. And Adrian Bastidon since said, yeah, Holt was there as well. Holt was always denied this. But in 1985, he admitted it yeah. before he became this TV personnel. So I think that's a really important admission. One thing about your book that really impressed me was the detail and the research and the sleuthing you had done to find the people. Interviews, transcriptions. Interviews, yeah. It's a nightmare. And hours and hours of research you did, I can only just imagine. But I have to say, I have never had a good feeling about Holt. And that was reinforced for me because I read Larry's book. Years ago. Yeah, left at Eastgate. Thank you. And my opinion of Holt was really reinforced when I spoke to Stacey. He just was very disparaging of Holt. He said Holt only came in a couple of days after things began and he was only there for the glory, he says. There's an interesting thing in the book, actually. One of the people who was part of his team that went out into the forest was a guy called Sergeant Munro Neville. Now, Mm -hmm. Munro Neville was not a security police officer. He was what's called a disaster preparing or something. And if you think he was a guy who was like trained to deal with nuclear, biological weapons, that kind of thing. And they would all go to him for training on those issues. He actually worked for one of the squadron commanders called Colonel Ted Conrad. And on the night when Holt is supposed to get involved, when I interviewed Munro Nels, he said something really interesting. He said that he'd been at home on what initially said was Sunday, and then he said it was a Saturday afternoon, tea time, four o'clock ish, when a Lieutenant Bruce England turns up his door. And Colonel Conrad had asked him to call round to Munro Nels' house, pick him up, and see if he would go into the forest and make an assessment of these alleged UFO reports. Now, a lot of people never really put this into context, but when I interviewed Lord Ronells, he told me that when he'd gone out with Lieutenant England into the forest, they too, just the two of them, had a UFO sighting as well. So that's one of the 17 that I list at the end in the conclusions. And most people aren't aware of this. And then when that incident finishes, that's when they go to supposedly the club where there's a function went on, a Christmas party. And over the years, Federal Holt has been the one that said, oh, uh, and yes, Lieutenant England came in and he said, it's back. And I said, what's back? And he said, you have thrown. And it's all like a story just being retold. Mimi Neville's said a different story. He said, so we had our sighting. We went back to find Colonel Conrad because that's who we worked for. So he went to speak to Colonel Conrad and he told him that they'd had a sighting that there were depressions in the ground from a landing. And Colonel Conrad had said to Munro Nevels, do you think it's worth further investigation? And Munro Nevels would say, yes. So he said, okay, you go back out there and do some more research, basically, more investigation. And Colonel Holt hadn't been involved in this process at all. And actually Colonel Conrad confided to Munro Nevels that he didn't really want Holt getting involved at all. 
because he said Holt was a bit of a he liked hanging out with the police and he liked the action. Yeah. And he didn't want him to get involved. So anyway, just as Monroe Nevels is about to leave with Lieutenant England, he's approached by Colonel Holt, who says, Can I come along with you? Now that's not quite the same as leading a team and taking down. Yeah. And because he was a sergeant and he's the deputy base commander, Lieutenant Colonel, high rank, he couldn't say no to the right. Lieutenant Colonel. So he said, Yeah, okay. And at that point there, that's when Holt gets involved. But that's not quite the same story that Colonel Holt has told in fifty or sixty documentaries over the years that made him like Colonel Conrad says, you go take charge. Yeah. That's not the story put out by that. Now, interestingly, as soon as Monroe Nevels published that in what was the UFO Enigma, which was Jim and John's book, from that point on, Colonel Holt has then started criticizing Monroe Nevels, say, oh, he wasn't very good, but I don't know. Yeah. And he never done that. For years, he'd always praised him. But as soon as he's told that story, which I suspect is the truthful story, mm. it, he, Colonel Holt was very negative to his comments about Monroe Nevels, and I believe not. Oh, 100%, 100%. I always got the impression that Holt was the person to provide the narrative that... He's kept, I think, as the book concludes, the narrative has been controlled. Yeah. Liberally, in my opinion, for the last yeah. 25 years. And really, only four people have controlled every documentary ever made, mm. basically, which is Colonel Holt, mm. um, Jim Penniston, to a lesser extent, John Burroughs, and Nick Pope. Yeah, interesting. So, uh, gets a chapter in the book. He has a very unique role, Bill mm. Rendleton, and he's been very influential as the world's go to guy in shaping how the public view the case, or not view the case, as you may suggest. Mm. And those four people have controlled it. They pretty much control who gets on in every documentary I've made. And that's wrong. Because mm. as you've seen in my book, I talk to lots of other military witnesses and their story is well worth being filmed. Oh, gosh, but nobody gets to hear about then. Yeah. Because the narrative is being controlled. And that's what I'm trying to do with the book is to try to say, look, many more people were involved. I've spoken to many of them. These people have been witnesses. They should be reintroduced. Yeah, I think your book is awesome. What you did is such an amazing job. Usually I can read books really quickly. I'm a very fast reader, a speed reader, and I retain what I read. Your book took me ages. It actually took me a few weeks to read because I would read it and then I'd go back. And and yeah, um, because there's so much detail in there and that. Bears witness to your years of being a police detective and being in the well, police. That's nice to hear yeah. from my point. That's what I try to do is to, yeah. is to make an investigative book. Actually, a lot of people, both the researchers who've read it and reviewed it and the kind of reviews that I've had since it's been out of Amazon, they've said it's a bit like a thriller. Yeah. Which is not how I, you don't think of a factual <laughs> book, thriller. But they say it reads a bit like a thriller, which I guess is really nice. And I guess people have enjoyed it. But yeah, I never set out to make it a thriller. Yeah, it's just the way you've laid it out. It's what I'd tell you one thing that really made me so angry. And I thought what gave him the right was one part in your book when you talk about the, the British bobbies that were there in the forest and were taking photos and had the camera confiscated by 
American place oh. on British soil, on yeah, British yeah. soil. Absolutely. And that would have happened because as much as Colonel Holt has tried to say, I never, because Adrian Bacinza says it's Colonel Holt. They, yeah. they take the, the cameras off and they hand it to Colonel Holt and he puts it in a plastic bag. Now, Holt totally denies this, but I know my money's on and it's on Adrian Bacinza. Okay. Uh, and we then have this, for years and years, this debate whether the British police were there in the forest. And of course, there are two reports, legitimate reports that were made uh, where the police turned up, the British police turned up, but they never actually involved in it. Mm. Whereas Larry Warren said the British police were there at the side of the field. They were watching the incident that he's involved in, which is now being corroborated by Sergeant Adrian Basinta. And when I interviewed Sergeant Adrian Basinta, he says, I let the staging area where all the vehicles were. When this vehicle comes in, it's possibly having its siren or a big light, and it goes me back. The American sirens went, yeah. Yeah. so very distinct. And I remember that because I was in the Air Force from 83 to 89. So I remember those old British vehicles that went back, terrible, sounded really corny as compared with the Americans that sounded really quite sexy. Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. Sound like Hawaii 5 all kind of thing. <laughs> but but we, are, we just had a cheap Bieber. But interestingly, Larry Warren, the original military whistleblower, and said to me that he'd heard an audio copy of Holt's audio tape where in the background he goes, be bad. No, I'd not heard this. And so I, I'm thinking, yeah, okay, I'll, I'll try to look for it. But anyway, eventually I found an audio copy and I was back to actual written evidence because the guy who had done what is arguably the first and best documentary made to date which was the CNN special that was filmed in late 84 and released in early 85, all the three separate nights. And the investigative reporter for CNN, Cable News Network, was Chuck Bicaro. Now, in a series of research notes, the MUFON investigator Ray Boucher had sent me was this single sheet of paper, which was a one page of a transcript of many pages of the incident from Holt's audio tape had been transcribed, all right? Now, I just had this one page, but here on this was in brackets and it annotated by Chuck McCarron, the lead investigator for the documentary. And in the brackets, in the speech, it went, Bieber. So there, he had actually positioned it in the transcript for me to account for. And sure enough, when it comes there, you have a very distinct Bieber. And then when I brought this up with Adrian Bastenza, says, yeah, a British police vehicle turned up at the stage you know, and Lieutenant England, who was part of that team with all, actually went across and spoke to them and said, turn that off, blah, blah, blah. Now, nobody mentions this ever. Right. This was absolutely new, which confirmed and corroborates what Larry Warren had said, is that on at least one of the nights, possibly this fourth night that we now know about, that the British police were there. And I suspect that this is the fourth night of consecutive activity, which we didn't know about until Sergeant Adrian Bistinger had said, no, it's another night with Larry. I think it's that night when the British police, it makes sense. Yeah, very interesting. It just really made me angry. What gave them the right to confiscate stuff on British soil from British police? Well, by the same token, within days, 
of the incident beginning, the forest trap that were public lands yeah. owned by the British were cordoned off. And yeah. people used to say their dogs should walk yeah. or cycling or whatever. It was a very popular area. And the many civilian witnesses will say they saw British police vehicles alongside U.S. Air Force security police vehicles were off their jurisdiction, blocking off these tracks into the forest, and they were told, oh, there's some incident, blah, blah, you can't go in the forest. I am absolutely convinced, based on the number of people, that that is actually true, that people, British people, were not allowed to go into the forest because they basically blocked it off, but the Americans certainly didn't have the jurisdiction to do that. Yeah. And I, the British didn't either. Yeah, that's really... So there's really... a lot of lies told. There's yeah. a lot of lies told. And this comes back to controlling this narrative. Yeah. There was only so much that the Americans wanted to say. And don't forget, for almost three years, they denied everything. Yeah. And it was only when the memorandum came out and the big, there was a big tabloid newspaper headline, UFOs uh, landing Suffolk in its official. And that was like a big double-page spread, and it went around the world. In 1983, as a virus it could get, it was picked up internationally, and that's what elevated the story to being known all around the world. But until then, the Americans had denied it. But in that newspaper report, it printed part of the Holt Memorandum, which hadn't been found until basically Larry Warren had said, I'm willing to put my name to it and say I was a direct witness. Yeah. When they did another Freedom of Information Act in America, because they said we've got a named witness, suddenly they find this document that had yeah. disappeared for three years, and that's how it comes out. But in that document, it's an amazing document. It's still historical. Holt was directly involved, so he's an important witness because it basically said on one night there'd been a landed triangular crap, gave measurements, and then two nights later... He, the lieutenant commander, the UFOs were allegedly back in the forest. He led a team out and he saw multiple UFOs himself and he signed that one-page document. That is pretty amazing for somebody who is right to do that. So that's yeah. why it's more famous. However, when the ramifications of that document coming out, it was never meant to go public. Halt to being told it will never be released. And then suddenly it was. Now, Colonel Williams, when it came out, was interviewed by James Fox many years later. Yeah. I think it was in the documentary, I Know What I Saw. And basically, it looks like James Fox has caught up with Colonel Williams, who's now in retirement, and it looks like he's just had a round of golf, and he's got his arm leaning on his vehicle. And it's just a quick, almost a non-interview, where he just asks him a couple of questions. But one of the things that he said was, he talked about the memo, and Colonel Williams said that the memorandum wasn't supposed to be released, basically. And when it did, it left us in a difficult position. But we had to admit some things that we wouldn't have ordinarily gone. And as I worked on the book over the three years of writing it, five years, five and a half years of research, three years of writing, that clip came back to haunt me time and time again because what I realised what Colonel Williams was saying was this document should have not come out and it led a life of its own and 
couldn't put Humpty back together again. So they had no choice but to admit there had been two incidents because there was an official US Air Force document outlining those two incidents. However, what I came to realize is that anything you didn't have a piece of paper for will deny. Yes. Anything else you didn't have a piece of paper, we're going to deny it. So all the interrogations. The interrogations that happened to at least four or five of the witnesses. Thank you. I was going to bring up that next, yes. Oh. <laughs> they, they were recorded on an audio tape. They gave statements. You, uh, certainly, Adrian Bastidas said I did a three-page statement. I asked for it afterwards, never got it. Where's that statement? It's not never been one release. A number of statements were released that I talked about at the beginning of the book, which is very poor. Hmm. Uh, Jim Peniston said he did a statement. And it wasn't quite the same as what he got. Ed Cabanzak, who was the driver of Sir Jim Peniston, said he put in a statement and he never saw that again. And he was told, no, sign a different statement. We saw the lighthouse. He said, the lighthouse lighthouse is pure fiction, always was. But in the book, I actually blame the media. Mm -hmm. The media were complicit in keeping this case down. Oh, yes. And and, and still aren't. And they're still uh, complicit, as with the American media, but certainly the British media played their part in dumbing the case down, uh, controlling the narrative, and not really allowing proper investigation to play. Sorry, I cut you off. No, not at all. No, some of the major witnesses also taken away and interrogated and used sodium pentathlon against their will, obviously, which is a pretty horrific thing. And I, I imagine well, some of them stories The two that definitely mentioned that are Sergeant Jim Peniston, who mm. was like the first night with us, and uh, Sergeant Adrian Bustinza. He didn't get injected, but he was threatened with it. Larry yeah. Warren, the original military whistleblower, he was given drug like true serum. But in the book, I think arguably one of the if not the most powerful page of writing in the book, is actually a transcript where Adrian Bustinza describes his interrogation. Yeah. And I remember when I was proofing the book, what I tend to do is I read speeches back like so, and I read it like that and give it feeling that as how he was turning it over and how he put it over on the audio. And it was palpable that he feared. Mm. And there's one particular page, I forget what page it is, but it's in the chapter on Bustinza, and, and he's talking about his interrogation. He said, here I was, a sergeant. I'd signed to fight for my country, protect my country, and I was being treated like a criminal. Yeah. I, he was being strong armed either side, sit there, treated like a prisoner. Done nothing wrong. And he said, you saw the lighthouse. I didn't see the lighthouse. He was told, bullets are cheap. Yeah. And his life was threatened. And he said, when they said that, I am so frightened. And he said that he wanted afterwards to go AWOL. He wanted to run away from the Air Force. He was so disgusted. And several of those people, at least Penister, Warren, Kabanzak, Adrian Bustinza, were given terrible treatment mm-hmm. by multiple interviewers we're not quite sure who which leads to the air force and special investigation but barry warren said that he was interviewed by 
a British guy client. So if he was through British involvement, I think Jim Patterson would say it was 14 or 15 times in the event big situations. But some of them were given a really hard time, and that is all forgivable for just doing the job. You've done nothing wrong, and it's supposed to be protecting your country. You feel proud, and then suddenly you've been treated like a criminal. I think not enough people talk about the uh, significance of those terrible interrogations. Oh, Colonel yeah. Holt actually has made comments saying that they were treated harshly. He led to part out that they were treated yeah. harshly. At least he said it. And yeah. that's in part. Uh, and there's no excuse for treating people like that. And in the other incidents, UFO incidents around the world, we know that other intimidations and interrogations take place at the hands of the Americans. Uh, so it's something new. Now, another thing that you brought up in your book, which actually Stacey spoke to me about, was the gentleman who had the downloads, the binary download that he wrote. You read my book, you, yeah. you will know my opinion. Yeah. Uh, Jim Penniston was clearly a witness to that first night landing. Mm. So that's not in doubt. Where I have a problem with the binary cords is the very misleading comments that he said in the days when it occurred. Yeah. And I make a big splat about it because he tried to tell people at the 30th anniversary conference in Woodbridge, which is not far from Reynolds. So we're talking 2010. And right. he basically said, I've, I've had this download of information. I think it's gibberish. Why have you told us this? It's 30 years down the line. Been retired many years. Mm -hmm. Why couldn't he have told people by then? He'd been asked, he appeared in lots of documentaries, he never mentioned it, and then somebody's telling the audience that he's had this, and he thought it was gibberish, didn't know zero. Now, on the face of it, it sounds plausible enough. When I actually did a transcript of that, he was interviewed, that conference, that two-hour conference, or part of it, was recorded on video, and I got hold of a copy of the video, and I did a transcription. And at one point, He's told the audience, who weren't aware of this, that he can't say too much because he's doing a documentary for aliens and he's been given a message. And he basically said, I don't know what it is. Just there as ones. It came out accidentally. And basically, I don't know what it meant. But at the same content, in the transcript, at one point, he says, and, and this is totally missed by the audience because right. they're still stunned by him saying, 30 years later, he's telling them a new bit of evidence. Right. So they're still pleased in terms of that. But he's actually on stage and he actually says, and it's completely missed by the audience, that he did find out band records were mentioned in 1994 when he'd done hypnosis and that Linda Moulton had, had, mentioned, had done a transcript in a book, Glimpses of Other Realities, which right. had come out in 1998. And that was completely missed. But how can he say, I don't know what it is, what it was, and then be saying in 1994 that he did find out. Now, he was still on video. Now, you're telling me that if you're into unhypnosis, you don't watch the video later on? Yeah. Especially if someone said something really strange came out. Well, he'd be curious and go, well, do what that is. And I so he think so. And he says, no, I won't interest. Even if he didn't, by the time it comes out in 1998, it's in black and white. And one of the things that kind of is puzzling is that it says in the partial transcript in Lender's book, it says, under hypnosis, someone is saying 
Sean, what, what, talking about the binary code. Have you seen the binary code? Now, this is done on hypnosis. So this is not open record. This mm. is done on the hypnosis. And basically, somebody has asked him whether it's intelligence agents in his memory right. of, of that on hypnosis. But they mentioned, have you seen binary code? That says to me he could have had an implanted false memory put in there about binary codes. So that puts, puts a red flag up. And then 11 days after that conference, 11, 12 days later, he does a, what turned out to be quite significant with a, a podcast or radio show host called Angela Joyner. And it's a very good interview. Where I remember the first time I heard it, and it's an American interview. At times, his answers are right all over the place. Right. And I would advise anybody to listen to that interview because her reactions are like, yeah. You said this. She's trying to get her head around it. You can clearly tell that she's befuddled. But when you do the transcript, he's basically saying, I knew what message was straight away. Mm. I saw what he told the audience mm. 12 days early. Mm. Oh, yeah, I knew when I touched the, that it was time travel. She was really? Didn't say that. There's lots of things that are inconsistent. And for me, as a former detective, the biggest one that stands out is if you had, and I'm not saying you can't have a download of information, I think you can. Mm. But in this particular case, I'm suspicious because if you had that, if that had happened to you, for example, or it happened to me, and it was the only time in your life that you'd have this kind of auto writing experience, yeah. I think I know how many pages yeah. of auto writing I would have done. Yeah. But not Jim Penniston, because the first of all, he said it was six, then it was eight, then it was nine, then it was 12, 13. Now it turns out that the 16th bit, that just jars with me, because I think I wouldn't know. It'd be such a unique experience. Yeah. And even if he hadn't have known how many pages he wrote, at some point, somebody would say, How many pages is it? He nearly gone. Eight. And that eight would have stuck in his mind forever long. You only had to do that search once and find out how many pages there was. And it would be stuck there because it's so ingrained. It's such an unusual trauma. Yeah. And for the fact that he kept changing the pages, numbers, just don't sound right to me. So for me, I'm very dubious about the so-called binary code. Personally, if I was to put money on it, I'd say it didn't happen. The reason I brought that up is because Stacey said to me after his experience when he was on duty at the East Coast, I think I've got his name right. I hope I did. Michael Stacey's man. Yes. Yeah, he's in your box with Laurie at the end. Yeah. And he said to me, he was telling me of the physical effects that his body had been left with after his experience, but he also said that he had been downloading mathematical equations and stuff yeah, he like did. that. He, yeah. When I spoke to Michael Stacey Smith, uh, he had a precursor case in uh, July of 1980. A really good case and where he'd basically been at Aria Woodbridge, close to the East Gate, and he, I think he was going out to relieve himself. He then sees this beach ball size object moving right to left, just on the outside of the perimeter fence where he yeah. was made. So he takes over, he's got a big M60 machine gun. It's like the Rambo, big machine, heavy machine gun. Right. And he's like cocked and ready to quiet. And that's because he calls for Basco. Having seen this object, and an airman went towards the fence to make this red glowing object. 
And that's when he dropped his weapon because he said, basically, if anything had happened to the airman, I would have discharged my weapon. Right. So, that's, so he had a very interesting precursor case. And then, of course, he told me about Lieutenant Bonnie Tanklin, which we could maybe go on to in a bit. Yes. But yes. with regards to the download, he felt afterwards, after having that experience in July, within minutes, he said that he hid away when yes. he objected. He was frightened. Yeah, and it was and only 19. took sanctuary in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. And was still on the base. But he basically kept himself to himself. And he said, like, he, he only revealed a little bit, hinted at that he'd had some, but he wasn't really confident to talk about it. Yeah. And he knew nothing about maths or anything, but he said he'd received some information. Hence why I say, I do believe you can have downloads. Yeah. But you need to be consistent. And he wasn't really ready when I talked to you to talk about that in any detail. Yeah. So I didn't put it too hard and yeah. I didn't get the book because yeah. he wasn't comfortable yeah. about yeah. talking about it at that time. Yeah. So you respect the person that you're dealing with. I, absolutely. But, yeah. I actually felt really sorry for him. He was obviously in a bad He's been he's very of, ill at the moment. Yeah. He's very ill. And what he thinks is illness is caused by radiation. Yeah. And, and uh, I, I certainly suspect that he should be seen by other people who have been seen, like Jim Penister, John Burroughs. They went to the VA and got compensation, allegedly, yeah. for their injuries caused. Now, I think Stacey Smith should have the same. Oh, choice. 100%. Honestly, my... He's a nice guy. And he's, he's, he's not well. Really a lovely man. Honestly, my heart broke when I spoke to him. Because, like I said, it was just spirit of the moment, so I had nothing prepared. And yeah. he, I think he might have been, had a, a bit to drink. And so he was a bit more relaxed. But honestly, it just broke my heart. And he was just left, no support afterwards. Yeah, and he lives in a very rural area. Yeah, yeah. He's very much on his own a lot yeah. of the time. Yeah. And he's, I think he struggles health-wise. And who wouldn't? And we're living in a strange time now where potentially we could have disclosure soon. I was going to. And he should be somebody that's embraced as being a victim. Yes. And deserves medical treatment and and the best support he can. He is a victim like many of us. All the people who are involved around the street, whether they've played a big part, a small part, they're all the victims of some trauma. Yes. On their normal sphere of of knowledge, uh, whatever it was. And it certainly wasn't. Mad made in, in the conclusions of my book, not one of the incidents, the 17 time difference incidents that I lay out that had never been laid out in that timeline. Yeah. 17 yeah. different time incidents, separate time. None of those be described by the witnesses as anything conventional. And these people have talked about, well, it was holograms, not in 1980, I'm no, sorry. No. Not all <laughs> different parts of the forest, not for days on end. Or it was certain plasma weapon. Maybe one or two could have been, but not 17. Yeah. All in all, those kind of stories. Oh, it's the East German or a Polo that came down or it's Soviet. Maybe as a one-off, yeah. But it doesn't explain the other 16 or 17. Yeah, yeah. So you see what I mean? If there yeah. had just been one incident, then you might say, yeah, maybe it was a cover-up of an East German spike yeah. or a Russian Soviet that crashed. But not when you have 17 different yeah. incidents, all in different locations, in and around the twin bases. 
at one point, I speak to a guy called A.M. and Steve Longero, who was a smashing guy, 30-year law enforcement career and military career, absolutely strong. And he said that he, again, just arrived on the base there only a few days on ship. When he is on a routine, one of his first shifts inside the weapon storage area, and he's been told to walk around with an experienced um, custody from somebody who's experienced in the way how it works in the weapon storage area. And he said, we're in there walking around with our rifles, our M16s, when suddenly they see a UFO near the forest that then shines a beam down into the nuclear bunkers. Yeah. We've heard stories and rumours. Never had a first-hand witness. You talk about David Grush and people say, oh, he's not a first-hand witness. Steve Longero, first-hand witness. And he sees a UFO shining a beam down into the weapon storage bunkers, and it then proceeds to do like a grid-like search, 200 metres long search of all the bunkers, as if it's scanning for something, what's under there? Right. And it's looking for the amount of nuclear weapons it might be in. Can't prove it, but I think that's why they turn up numbers and have got this interest in weapons. Colonel Holt, on the very first night in May 2007, said there were more nuclear weapons that are wanted anywhere else in Europe. It wasn't the fact that they couldn't hold nuclear weapons. It was a nuclear base. I found a document that's in the book that listed yeah. 25 nuclear weapons, but I suspect it was hundreds long that were illegally held on the ground. Mm. And a lot of people in Britain thought they were in different locations. And I think that's why they can never admit it. Because right. they are on the ground. Right. At the time of world crisis, people again don't realise the context of Reynoldsham. At the time of Reynoldsham, why do you have force turn up? Imagine you've got this illegal staff of extra nuclear weapons, and you have force and nuclear weapons have been uh, something of interest for 70, 80 years. Yeah. Correlation there. And at the time of Reynoldsham, late December 1980, there were two world events taking place. There was the Rise of the Polish shipyard workers under Lech Wałęsa, who went on to become president and a revolutionary. But that was still a part of the Soviet Union. Mm. In late December 1980, hundreds of thousands of Soviet troops were massing on the borders mm. of Poland. And if you remember your history, if you're young like me, the, yeah, put down, the Soviet Union had put down rebellions in yeah. Hungary, in Czechoslovakia. Yes sent the tanks in the rebellion. It looked like they were going to do it again. So again, high tension. And then, of course, we also had the Middle East powder cake yeah. of 52 Iranian hostages being held by the Iranians. So 52 Americans being held by the Iranians. So there's a powder cake there. So to me, why do they turn up? At a time of world crisis, possibly a World War Three scenario, they turn out and they're thinking, they could not be there. Yeah. In my opinion, nuclear is by you or something. Yeah, and it's been some of the whistleblowers, certainly in the Stephen Breer's press conference, talked about they've had the nuclear weapons shut down by. Oh, yeah. Well, Robert, yeah. I met Robert Sellers several times, right. uh, and he was the guy in 1967, Miles from Air Midwest, when basically 10 nuclear weapons were shut down, and he was the guy. Underground, 80 feet off the ground, 
yeah. who had got the dual key system to start World War Three. So you can't have more of a, a credible person. No. no. And he recently gave testimony to the Brazilian Senate in June of last year. I and he were the only two foreign speakers to the Brazilian Senate. That was a big honour. And then, of course, since the ARO office, the All Domain Anomaly Resolution Office, we now know that through the whistleblower legislation passed in late 2022, he has since given his testimony to ARO. Now, the question is, when will he get called as a witness in a further congressional hearing? Yeah. Some debate there. And this is why I said to you, just had a very... A much better hearing. Yeah. It was excellent. It, and it has caused reverberation. It's yes. not caused disclosure yet, but it's opened some doors. And if we have three or four more before the end of this year, mm. and more revelations come out and more witnesses come out, like first time witnesses like David Shavar and Ryan Graves, then we're not going to be fired off because the press are just beginning to get an inkling that they may well have been deceived. 75 years and and i've never seen a time with someone you're interested now so we're close it's very interesting and uh, what i haven't told you but i've been an experience in my entire life since i was three i have conscious interaction with staff there is. Okay. and uh, one of the things that they did tell me in late 80s early 90s was that who currently control the, the world narrative about them have been told yeah. that they had to release the information about other intelligence off of this planet. They were given a time frame, and if they didn't, the choice would be taken out of their hands. That, yeah. Like, yeah. So, now, that, were you actually given a time frame of when that would occur? No, they didn't give me a time frame, but I've watched, particularly over the past three to five years, how they've been drip, drip feeding yeah. bits out and how they're changing. They're using social manipulation to change people's attitude. Before, the press used to be really derisive and derogatory towards any witness. Yeah, the stigma was ingrained. Yeah, deliberately, obviously. Yeah, absolutely. And now the attitude has changed when they report on these things. They no longer are derisive. They're not putting music on. They're not, yeah, you know, yeah. Yeah. You know then you're having some serious discussions now. They're not laughing anymore. Yeah. And then, and, and obviously with the testimony that David Grubbs has given, you still got some of the mainstream trying to fight against it and they don't give the whistleblower of David Grubbs the credibility that he has. They'll just say military veteran intelligence special. Yeah. But they don't say that he's qualified up to presidential level. Yeah. He's as high as you can go. He's as good a witness as you could ever get. Yeah. They don't say that. So that context leaves their audience thinking, oh, there's just another guy. Exactly. Oh, and, he's only, and he's only telling stories. It's hearsay. Yeah. Uh, not when somebody like him comes out. And plus he said, I interviewed 40 people over four years and several of them have given testimony, tried to give testimony to the Inspector General. Those are the people who now need to really start to go onto the stand. Because if those people on oath, the, the risk of perjury, five years imprisonment, I think something like a ten thousand dollar fine, but they're at risk of five years in prison if they lie, which is again not really emphasised. Yeah, those people who are first-hand testimony, if they give their testimony, 
as the Joe Facilitia skit, as they talk about, and as mentioned by David Grush, that he, he couldn't release too much unless yeah. he was in a, a totally classified skit environment. But that needs to happen ASAP because yeah. if what he said and claimed is true, as I believe it is, and other people who were directly involved crash UFO retrieval programs and then reverse engineering those are trying to make them work that is dynamite and that needs to be the first thing that happens the summer recess in Congress Senate that needs to happen ASAP to as many Congress people who are able to get in and, and hear the classified things that he had to say uh, but no he was very detailed he signed all the times the place he runs them who was still on them where the law changed Yeah. And he's willing to give it, but yeah. he could only do it in a classified environment. But you're right in what you're saying is, and I've been saying it for a while over this, certainly over this last year, I think there is something driving this rut yeah. to a disclosure, mm-hmm. which we've never seen before. Mm-hmm. And I think we see there's something happened behind the scenes with them. Like you said, possibility that said you've got until then to get it out, which yeah. will do it. And I've been saying for a while that the Americans have lied, but they've really been the bad guys in all yeah. this, the intelligence community. They've lied to the public and the world for 75 years about this. So there'll be a backlash against that. The yeah. media will be complicit, albeit at the highest level, not at general level, but yeah. the highest level. They've been taken in by the lie, whatever they're playing. They were taken in. They played a part. Yeah. The decisions by government cannot alone affect everyone. It's the media that basically puts everything across yeah. and gets into the minds of people. It's not the politicians. It's the media. And they did the bidding for, mm. for the government. Maybe they thought they were doing it for the right reason. But we're at a point now that when it all comes out, there'll be uh, at some point against journalists, back against the intelligence community. Yeah. You could argue justifiably yeah. because of the lie and the ridicule and the stigma. Yeah. And people have committed suicide. Yes. And the victims that were ridiculed, mm. uh, pilots, military, whatever, the young airmen, all yeah. those being affected post-trauma and told that it was nothing. That is wrong. Mm. But where to move on to me is to have truth and reconciliation here. Yeah. like they did for apartheid in South Africa. Uh, and we get those people who are involved in the lies to go on the stand under oath and say, what part did you play? Yeah. Uh, now, as David Grush spoke about, if money has been illegally diverted from legitimate funded projects to mm-hmm. go to projects, then that's a different matter. Those people should give their evidence and if there's found criminal involvement, they should be free. It shouldn't be a witch hunt. What we want is to establish just exactly what was known, what your part was. That's very much your testimony. We can now write the history. Because there's still so much you don't know. But I have been saying for a while now with this driver, what's driving it, is if we had the Phoenix Lights now, third in 1997, the world is a very different place now because the technology has improved so much. People have 4K, 8K mobile phones, high quality. 
you now have social media that can start live streaming an event. Yeah. If there was a shooting outside your bedroom and in the street and it was broad daylight, feed some people be looking out the bedroom because there'd be so many. There'd yeah. be live streaming it. And this footage would turn up. Imagine if the Phoenix lights happened. It was tracked for over 200 miles. It was described as being boomerang shaped a mile to mile winter. Yeah. To winter. It stops over. People on the journey before it even stopped over Phoenix would be live streaming it. Yeah. And once that live streaming happens and all the great feeds of video start to come in, then you realize that it's not just a hook. Once that happened, the TV would be live, helicopters would be up there, everybody's trying to get in on the story, and you could not contain that event now if it happened. Mm. What happens if they know that you are supposed for real? Mm. Something has happened in the background, be it communication or something definitive has been found that has convinced them we can't hang on to this any longer. But I suspect that they now fear them showing themselves yes. without them giving their side of the story to us. Yes. And I think that's why there's a rush to judgment. Yes. There is a, there's a pace to this that seems unfounded. And Chuck Schumer, I think it was the 14th of July, just before the hearing, went forward having never made a public comment in office about UFOs, UAP, and suddenly introduced a, a bill for Congress to vote upon which has been voted on since and passed, that it was called the UFO UAP Disclosure Act. Now, for people like you and me who follow this subject for a long time, this is like science fiction. Okay. Yeah. So the legislation is there in the white. And uh, as a former police officer, I was used to having to learn bits of legislation and know how legal speak jive would work. There's really been a lot of thought about what is being said. But in that legislation, which was then when he spoke about it, proposed legislation, he mentions over two dozen times non-human intelligence. Mm. Now why can you imagine where that's changing? Why is a politician who has never publicly said anything about it and then suddenly he's introducing a bill for law to sign to be signed up by the president in late December twenty twenty three? It's unprecedented, yeah. and it echoes a lot of what David Rush is saying. I think that's behind the scenes, because we know that Rush uh, gave his testimony for 11 and a half hours. It was done a while ago. You know, all the people, first-hand witnesses have gone forward. I think Chuck Schumer has had a, a classified briefing that said it's real. But so we have got these programs, first-hand witnesses, blah, blah, blah. So he thought we need legislation. And what they're saying is that within 60 days, I think it is, Anything that were, that's gone out to aerospace companies, to the American aerospace companies, has right. to be handed over. Whatever they've yeah. done, whatever technology they've managed to get working, whatever craft that they possess, can be handed over yeah. to the American. Yeah. So this is unprecedented times. Something is driving it, but I personally think that something has happened. And we'll be right that they said, well, either you do it by a certain time, yeah. or else and make you a demonstration better you on your terms than now. Yeah, absolutely. When my contact said that to me, and it didn't give me time because they don't work on time. Time doesn't exist outside of this reality is what I'm continually told by them. But they did say that humanity had to reach a certain 
waking point where there were enough people questioning. Yeah, and I think we've close to that. And we it's re- just a the door. If we have three more hearings by the end of this year, there's a real possibility by the beginning of 2024 that we're into disclosure. And you'll know when it happens. Oh. Because it's 24-7 yeah. on every news channel, every day like COVID. Yeah. I fully expect, along with that, that they will bring out some extraterrestrial representatives and say, this is so-and-so from somewhere. Well, it affects so much about yeah. everybody's the biggest story in history, and it will be. Clearly, you're not alone if it's extraterrestrial. Yeah. But the I personally don't think, even if we get destroyed, I don't think we'll ever know the true extent or it's unlikely we'll find out the true extent of all the secrets that the Americans have done. No. All the no. experiments that they've done and all the stuff that they've done. There's clearly, a lot of it is illegal because money's been diverted into these programs. There's no Senate, Congress oversight. That's right. Mm-hmm. And the intelligence community should work to the, the Congress and the House. And, it has, and they, they've been alarmed to themselves. And I think presidents have been denied the truth. Yes. But it's about time Congress takes over. And that's why, in a sense, full of admiration uh, for Senator Tim Burchett and Alan Perlina Luna, because it takes a certain kind of person with real strength of character to say, there's something wrong here, and I'm going to go out the truth. And we've never had that in public office. Yes, you've had lots of politicians who've expressed this interest, but nobody that's gone home, mm. nobody that would stand and say, I'm going to get to the bottom of this and I really am going to do it. Yeah. And you're not afraid to say the Pentagon line. Yeah. And it's really, we're just watching it going, yes, what? Okay. Tim, yeah. Tim. Yeah. Uh, and and we never had that really anybody fighting to the truth. And I think it's our first hearing was so important for the public. It wasn't for the UFO community. No. As much as we're watching it, it was really for the public yes. and the media who were thinking, is there anything to this? Mm. Graves and David Law were fantastic. You could not have got a better result than what happened. So now, even the media, they're talking about cubes inside spheres. Yes, and, yes. And attacks uh, 40 foot long with no wings. We knew that because yeah. those people have been interviewed before. Graves and Trevor many times about their respective incidents, but the general public, 95% who don't believe this, who've been led a lie all their lives. So they, 95% of people and politicians and business people don't have a clue what's about to happen. And so that's why there is so much that the world will be in shock. And it will take a while for people to accept it. And I do think that they'll need to release videos. Yes. Luella Lozondo has talked a 23-minute video, broad daylight, taken by the, a fighter pilot in broad daylight, and, and, and he's in his cockpit there, and, and the object is there mm. in daylight. And that kind of thing, I think, needs to be released because people, we live in a world of fake news. Yes. And I think people will need a lot of convincing. But certainly if politicians get into a skiff with David Rush and he tells them and then other people confirm his story who were direct witnesses, then you're into disclosure then. 
Mm. It's really not into disclosure until one, the government had fully admitted they were not going to tell you. Two, the media hear that. The media hit needs to hear the president say we are dealing with human intelligence group. He can say we don't know what it is, but Lamar, we yeah. tried to reverse these things. We, we can't even switch them on. So it may well be something like that, but they, and I think that the media are starting to realize that they've been hoodwinked. They're getting close to the next hearings. If more witnesses get shown, when they learn about nuclear missile shutdowns, mm. again, we'll know the stories. Mm. The public won't, mm. and the media won't, because they've had a clawed line to it all. And when they start to hear about nuclear missiles being shut down in Ukraine, former Ukraine a facility having 10 nuclear missiles switched on into launch mode, when those kind of stories filter into the media, mm. And the public who were just generally looking in, and I think we're a lot more interested next time. We're more interested. That's when you, you, it starts to get to a tipping point where people are going, wow, seems to be real. Mm. And, they're, and they're just waking up to it. But I think there will be a big shock period for the next, as and when it happens, the first year or so, maybe quite difficult. The world's not going to stop. There's not going to be LinkedIn within a very sophisticated world now. Most opinion polls will say that there's over 50% believe now that the government hiding stuff and down the line after a period of anger and resentment at the lies, there's got to be a structured way to get over that, which I recommend the truth. Reconciliation here and personally, part-time here. I think we have to do that. Uh, and I think we move on because as Vice President of ISA, the International Coalition for Extraterrestrial Research, it, this is not an American issue. This no. is a worldwide global issue. Yeah. And unfortunately, because so much of the world has relied on America, guarded the UFOs, mm. uh, they're looking to America now, in a sense, for a lead as to what to do, because all these other countries have been left to believe to stop it. Then they're going to find out that they've been lied to. Mm. The bottom line is, as the truth comes out, we have to come together as a human race and not yeah. as as one country against another. There is only one human race, and this is a global issue. Mm. And some people will be frightened. I suspect that 20% of the public will be traumatized, like COVID, lockdowns, yeah. nobody envisaged people getting mental health trauma from being yeah. locked down long periods. I think there's likely to be a proportion of people who are severely traumatized by this news because they'll fear that yeah. they're vulnerable. Technically, we are. Mm. Something fly around in your own space and you can't control it. But we would argue in the subject, they've been around for 75 years at least, and there doesn't appear to be an overt threat of an invasion. Right. So they're not a threat per se. Technically, they've had to change the goal, plus get it into the media. And I understand that. They've turned it into an air safety issue. Yeah. And that branded it to make it more easy to talk about, seriously. And that, if that happened, I still like UFOs because I believe some UFOs are extraterrestrial. But yes. nevertheless, I can understand why they changed it to UAP and why things have had to go on the air safety because it does make sense. Mm. You can't have something flying in your airspace and have no collisions with these things. And yeah. It's not an issue. So I understand all that. But we have to, once the story starts coming out, we guard against people trying to say, it's an invasion, that kind of thing. Yeah. I don't think that's all. 
if they'd have wanted to invade, they could have done it a long time. Oh. I, I think that, again, we're back to that description I gave earlier. I think we're like Barry Reese. They yeah. come here largely just to watch us in our habitat. And I think they don't like nuclear weapons because they probably live in our deepest oceans, the rock bases. Mm. And if we go to nuclear arm again, mutual assured destruction, then it affects their bases of the rock and destroys pollutes the planet. So I think that's why they don't like nuclear weapons. If somebody said, ditch billions of tons of oil on the dirt, be raised, and we'll be a bananas, oh, it's an aerial break, yeah. beauty, blah, blah, blah. Maybe with that area of beauty, and maybe they see that nuclear weapons could destroy this beautiful oasis in our part of the cockpit. Not only that, but it bleeds, the nuclear energy bleeds through dimensionally. It goes into other dimensions as well. So it doesn't, I don't know about that, but it may well do. I'm yeah. not doubting that. That's what I've been told. That's information. That and it can well do. I, I, yeah. I think power of nuclear weapons is such a destructive force. Yeah. I think perhaps intelligent civilizations many years older than us quickly concluded that nuclear weapons can destroy a planet. They're too dangerous, so let's get rid of them. And I yeah. think it, and it ultimately, they said, well, actually, you can have free energy, get rid of your nuclear weapons, we'd all jump and join and get rid of fossil fuel fuels and climate change, and all that yeah. kind of effect on the climate. So there is a lot of positivity of things of learning new technology. Okay. We'd answer that age-old question, how we learn, what are our origins? Maybe we've seen it from Mars. I actually think that's as plausible as anything else. If you had a dying planet, what would we do? We'd go to our nearest place, the moon, and try to colonize it, and go to Mars, try to maintain the, the human race. We know that Mars had an atmosphere, much like Earth. Billions of years ago, it's older than the Earth. We know that something catastrophic happened. It lost its atmosphere. It lost its ocean. If it was technological, what would happen? If you're on the brink of yeah. disaster, go to your nearest planet that was similar. Yeah. Hence why we, we may have been seeded from Martians. It's purely, purely plausible that to me. It's the only thing that we would do an event, an extinction event, try yeah. to save some of our humanity. Yeah, but got way off the subject of your book, but it's been really... That's two hours, and that's never <laughs> Really fascinating. That, so back to your book, let's finish up with your book because okay. it's such an awesome book. It is so well-researched and presented. That's very kind of you to say Oh, no, I'm quite fussy about UFO stuff. I'll pay you later. <laughs> That'd be nice, but no. Um, no, it's yeah. very kind. I'm humbled by the comments that people have passed on the book. Yeah, it's really awesome. And Gary, I applaud you for all the work that you've done on that and putting it out there. Would you like to tell my listeners where they can obtain your book from and any social media websites, et cetera, that you have? Yeah, I'm the uh, founder and editor of US Law Truth Magazine, which is a PDF. It's not in print. It's an easy, 96 pages goes all around the world. It comes in a PDF bi-monthly. So that's every two months you get a copy sent to your email address. All you have to do is go online and put uflogchiefmagazine.co.uk. The book itself is 500 pages and it's only available at the moment on Amazon. So Amazon New Zealand, Amazon Australia, UK, wherever Amazon is, you download it and it ships within 48 hours. 
it's £17.99 in the UK. I'm not sure what the equivalent is, but whatever the currency equivalent is. And as I say, it's 500 pages. And a lot of people say that it's become the definitive book on the chip, including many researchers. So grateful for that. And hopefully that will be the case. But yeah, certainly it's only available on Amazon. I am going to try to get a mainstream publisher. I deliberately did not. So uh, I self-published just to get the truth out. Yeah. Now, with all the uh, great reviews from us, I can think I can now go back and see a potential bestseller here. Because I think I don't have the marketing skills, the distribution skills, yeah. distribution network, which downs itself. It would be nice to think that other people would get to read it. Oh, gosh, uh, yes. If people want to come up with ideas and if they know publishing houses, they might be interested then by all the if you like the book, then email me at hesletinegarryatholmail.com, all lowercase, name in reverse. Couldn't be easy. But I appreciate you giving me the opportunity to come on your show. We enjoyed it, and hopefully you've enjoyed it. I have. It's been a really awesome. This is the most exciting time yeah. in the subject I've ever known. Yeah. I yeah. just hope it continues. Oh, I believe it will. And one last thing about the back engineering. And I meant to say it when you were talking about it, but we got sidetracked and said this is when they talked about it and they're hearing it. Absolute vindication for Lazara Robles. It is what he said that there were recovered craft and there were X number of models and blah, blah, blah. It's yeah. almost certainly true. Yeah. There's still going to be a debate as to whether he was directly involved, mm. but I think a lot of people think that he was mm. now that with everything that's coming out. And he would be good to get a final answer on that if yeah. people say yeah i worked in blah blah that would be good from his point of view i would have a, a, a little side story here is that in, in later life i got to know staff in cleveland because, right uh, we met up at conferences young and uh, i think i had lunch with him when we were at conferences and so we'd often talk about this he was always very quiet onto the uh up and i would say yeah now i see what you're saying and you can't prove his background blah 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 I said, but he always comes across as being very compelling to me. And I said, you really don't give a monkey whether you believe him or not. And I said, I like that about him. He, and he said, well, I keep telling me how it is. And so for me, I don't know the answer, but I've always found him quite compelling. And it would be good to get a definitive answer on that. But I've always thought that we've had a question in the program and oh, what yes. he's likely to be true. It'd be nice to get an answer on that. And it would right. be good for Bob Zara to get that. Yeah, absolutely would. Thank you so much for your time, Gary. In this episode, we've delved into the mysteries of unidentified aerial phenomena. UFOs explored government secrecy and questioned the very fabric of our reality. Gary, your passion and dedication to unravelling the unknown have truly made this episode an unforgettable experience for our listeners. To my listeners, your curiosity fuels the heart of this podcast. If you enjoyed this journey into the extraordinary, don't forget to subscribe, share and connect with us on all social media. We'd love to hear your thoughts and stories. As we wrap up, a massive thank you to each one of you for tuning in. Your support keeps me inspired and motivated. Until our next exploration, stay curious.
stay open-minded, and keep seeking the mysteries that make life so incredibly fascinating. Once again, thank you Gary Hesseltine, and thank you my wonderful listeners for being a part of the Walking the Shadowlands podcast. Until next time, take care and may your curiosity continue to guide you on your own extraordinary adventures. This is Marianne bidding you farewell from the Shadowlands. This podcast is available on all free podcasting platforms. Check out our Facebook page, WT Shadowlands, our Instagram feed, Walking the Shadowlands, Twitter at Shadowlands10, TikTok under Walking underscore the underscore Shadowlands. Also, we do have a YouTube channel under Walking the Shadowlands as well. Also, if you have Alexa, simply say these four words. Open Walking the Shadowlands and Alexa will play our latest episode for you. If you don't have a smartphone, don't worry, you can listen to the episodes from the podcast website, www.walkintheshadowlands.com. For those hearing impaired, there's a full written transcript of each episode on the website, so you don't miss out at all. Thanks for listening to this episode. Ka kite.